0: Hello, this is Dr. Ken Spiegelman, and we are so happy to bring you another Pediatric Podcast Pearls. We are grateful to have today Dr. Alana Wainick, who is from our hospitalist program at Connecticut Children's, who will be discussing a new clinical pathway on community-acquired pneumonia. And uh, clinical pathways... Um, they're not that new, but they're relatively new in the development of hospital care and even outpatient care. These are evidence based, standardized best practices that often provide for better outcomes and less costs in the provision of care uh, for children with various illnesses. But we must remember that pathways serve as guidelines, they don't replace our clinical judgment. And it's interesting. When I went on our clinical pathway site at CCMC, I realized we have over fifty of them. And Dr. Wainick has been in- instrumental in the development of this part of the program. So thank you, Dr. Wainick.
1: Oh, you're so welcome. I'm I'm glad that that you know what a clinical pathway is, and that we even have a program and where to find them.
0: Well, thank you so much for what you do and for what your department. So I'm going to start off with some questions. Uh, My first question is: why is community acquired pneumonia an important topic for us to talk about?
1: Sure. Um, Well, community acquired pneumonia or CAP, you might hear me reference it as CAP moving forward. Um, It's responsible for 2 million outpatient visits every year. And it's among the most common causes for pediatric hospitalization. You know, it vis with bronchiolitis and asthma. Um, And it's important to talk about today because there have been some changes in literature and literature shows us that more that very, very often broader spectrum antibiotics than needed and for longer courses than are needed are often prescribed to treat community acquired pneumonia. Um, We know that this can lead to antimicrobial resistant organisms. And also some of those broader spectrum antibiotics can cause more antibiotic related events. You know, in this day and age, practicing antimicrobial stewardship is so important to prevent those things from happening. And antimicrobial stewardship means choosing the narrowest effective antibiotic for the shortest duration of time that, is, that, is, um, that will treat the infection, and also ensuring that these antibiotics are prescribed at the recommended dose and frequency.
0: Okay, thank you. This is so critical because many of us sort of get stuck and dug into our old habits, and it's hard to change those habits, even though it affects the ultimate care of our patients. So this is great. How has the management of community-acquired pneumonia changed recently?
1: Yeah, so thank you for asking that. And this this um, podcast is really timely because we are actually about to update the pneumonia clinical pathway at the end of this month. It will be live if you check back on our website. Um, Our old pathway is based on the Infectious Disease Society of America and the Pediatric Infectious Disease Society guidelines that are old, they're back from 2011. And since then, there's been a lot of new literature published. And I think we'll go into some of these things in greater detail as we talk further. But just to summarize the points, We know that the susceptibility patterns for for, for strep pneumo have changed in the past several years so that they are now nearly 100% susceptible to amoxicillin and ampicillin. We now know that shorter durations of antibiotics are just as effective as longer ones to treat pneumonia. And finally, there's a better understanding about the differences of etiology between complicated and, and uncomplicated community-acquired pneumonia.
0: Dr. Waino, what do you think is the critical part in changing or that change the susceptibility patterns? Has it been immunizations, the way we've used antibiotics, changing aspect of strep pneumo itself?
1: You know, I actually don't know that I can adequately answer that question. Um, I will have to refer you to an infectious disease okay, specialist but, to answer that.
0: But the susceptibility patterns have increased tremendously. That's important. Yeah, they have. Know. They
1: have. Like back before, I would say the 1970s through the 1990s, we did see a lot of um, pneumococcal resistance and and we had to prescribe di- antibiotics differently then. We had to prescribe ampicillinamox at higher doses, at higher frequencies, and consider using... More broad spectrum antibiotics to treat resistant organisms, for sure.
0: Uh, What do we mean? I know you think about it from the hospitalized patient, probably us from the ones in outpatient care. What's the difference between an uncomplicated and a complicated community acquired pneumonia? And how can we make the difference?
1: Right. So so uncomplicated yeah. is your run-of-the-mill pneumonia that you see uh, most often um, as an outpatient provider. So this means mild pneumonia. Um, mild pneumonia, you know, a, a person doesn't really have respiratory distress. They may have a trace or small effusion if you do happen to get a chest x-ray or even a moderate effusion. But complicated pneumonia are those pneumonias that um, have larger effusions or effusion of any size that have loculations or septations, any pneumonia that has empyema, abscess necrotic lung or pneumatoceles is a complicated pneumonia. Um, and that, you know, just a little plug here for improving the value of care that we provide, which is something that we strive for with our clinical pathways, right? So value is the is the best care that we can give with over the least amount of cost. So we don't wanna do extra things that aren't necessary. Um, And national guidelines all stress that chest X-ray for mild pneumonia isn't indicated routinely. Certainly there are cases where it would be indicated, but routinely it's not indicated because the diagnosis of pneumonia is clinical. But for really sick patients or patients who aren't getting better with your standard treatment, you might consider a chest X-ray at that point to determine if they've developed complications.
0: So sort of a loaded question. Those are, uh, in the general practice, these broad terms of pneumonia and bronchitis are used quite frequently, quite loosely in pretty uncontrolled ways. So for instance, if we see a patient who we hear has a few rales in their lungs, but they're afebrile, their, their pulse oxes are okay. Most of these are viral, Correct.
1: Yeah, definitely. By far and away, and particularly in the kids who are younger than school-aged, the majority of lower respiratory tract infections are caused by viruses.
0: Which doesn't require an antibiotic, then. Which
1: does not require okay. antibiotics.
0: But it requires us to deal with a lot of the pressure from families who feel unhappy if we're telling them that their child has a pneumonia, but we're not going to treat them with an antibiotic. I think it requires right. sort of a re-education. Mm-hmm for right. sure
1: or or maybe using different infection like you have a viral lower lower respiratory tract yes. infection yes. instead of pneumonia yes. yeah i mean we deal with that in the inpatient setting as well when we treat you know kids with bronchiolitis same um, idea right
0: and it, it, the other counterpoint to it is that often these are the parents of the kids who have often gone to their practitioner for the same reason and ended up with a z pack you know, and I know we're <laughs> going to talk about that more. Uh, <laughs> That's right. Why Why do we treat uncomplicated and complicated community-acquired pneumonia differently?
1: Yeah, we treat them differently. And I'm just talking about antimicrobials at this point. Um, okay. We do treat them differently because we now know that their etiologies may differ. Not always, but they may differ. So like we just alluded to um, just now, uncomplicated pneumonia, the usual culprits, the usual ideologies are viral, right, for the, for the very young kids. Right. But in terms of bacterial causes, particularly in school-aged and older children, strep pneumo remains by far and away the most common bacterial cause of, of pneumonia. Um, and then if you have a child who didn't get all of their routine vac- vaccinations, you, you might worry about um, haemophilus influenza or Hib, H flu, however you wanna say it also.
0: We probably don't think about that as much because so many of our kids are fully immunized, but certainly in populations right. that aren't, it's critical to raise that flag. Right, right,
1: what exactly. About,
0: what about mycoplasm? And often talked about pneumonia, uh, patients, I think, or their families refer to it, or my my own family refers to mm-hmm. it as walking pneumonia, which I often tell patients well it means that you're walking around and healthy enough to walk around with something going on in your lungs. right?
1: Right, right. exactly. So um, I think there's a there's like a knee-jerk reaction for uh, pediatricians who have been pediatricians for longer than 10 years to want to prescribe azithromycin, you know for for this walking pneumonia or mycoplasma pneumonia. but there I'm, I hope that I'm empowering whoever's listening to this to not treat pneumonia ever with azithromycin. There is actually a huge body of evidence that, and when I say huge body of evidence, I mean um, randomized control trials and even meta-analyses, looking at the treatment of pneumonia with azithromycin versus placebo, or azithromycin plus a beta-lactam like amoxicillin versus amoxicillin alone. And all of these trials show that azithromycin does not, does, not improve, um, the, does not improve the course of the pneumonia or any outcomes of pneumonia. And so there's really not a role for azithromycin for community-acquired pneumonia, except for in the rare case where a patient might have some weird allergy.
0: So what you're saying is you would very, even in-house, diagnose a mycoplasm, which is hard to yeah. diagnose anyway.
1: Correct. Yeah. And we wouldn't really treat it. We know they get better on their own. I think the only time that I've used is the thromycin in the last, I don't even know how many years as a hospitalist has been to treat um, a baby with chlamydia pneumonia, because that is one of the treatments that's used. Right. (laughs) Wow.
0: Well stated. And I think we have a lot of education to do for ourselves and for our patients. You mentioned immunizations, which we probably don't think a lot about when we treat a pneumonia. Can you shed some more light on their role in the etiology of community-acquired pneumonia.
1: Yeah, so um, in our older management or the clinical pathway that's actually still posted on the website, um, but will be changed soon, we recommend asking about specifically about the strep pneumo immunizations that are received, because that helped us to determine whether or not a person would need high higher dose ampicillin or amoxicillin. But now, now that strep pneumo is very, very susceptible to the to the amoxicillin, ampicillin. We no longer need to worry about that. And really the big thing to consider is that hib vaccine. So um, if a patient has received at least two doses of HIB, you should feel really, really good because two doses of HIB vaccine make a person 92%, per- there's a 92% chance that that they will have immunity to hib and adding a third one actually only brings that efficacy up to 93%. so that's the question so we're talking to about ask. kids
0: by excuse me by a year of age they'll have yeah that. hopefully wow
1: yep exactly um and then so you don't really need to ask that strep pneumo vaccination history anymore and you know currently the strep pneumo isolates i told you it so Strep pneumo isolates are 98 to 100% susceptible to amoxicillin. There's not really much better than, you can't get better than that, right? They have a very, with a very low minimum inhibitory concentration or your MIC, meaning that we don't need to do these very, very, very high doses of um, ampicillin anymore to treat, to treat, or we don't need to do as frequent doses. And we can be more specific about that just now.
0: Okay, super. If strep pneumo is so susceptible to amoxicillin or an ampicillin, what antibiotics are recommended for the treatment of uncomplicated community-acquired pneumonia? Uh, so let's say we have a patient in the outpatient department. This is the most common. I think the most common way I've diagnosed it is either hearing rails with a fever, uncomplicated, or the child who has several days of fever and a cough, we can't hear anything, and we get a chest x-ray and there's a small low bar pneumonia right there.
1: Yeah. Uh, so,
0: so what sorry. antibiotics and what dosing would you recommend based on these pathways?
1: Yeah. So we we definitely recommend uh, um, if this is an outpatient, if the patient has had at least two doses of that Hib vaccine or the H flu vaccine, we recommend amoxicillin, 90 mg per kg per day. But now we recommend it divided only by 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 two doses, so bid. Before we were recommending dividing it three times a day, but because because this um, strep pneumo is so much more susceptible, we can afford to be at lower lower MICs at this point. Oh, so,
0: excuse me. Now, so that's a huge hmm. change because we yeah. were always recommending, based on the pharmacology therapeutic levels, q eight hours, which was. Really, a challenge for parents in terms of compliancy,
1: right? Exactly. Right? This so, is so much easier, and it can be done before, you know, and after school. You don't have to worry about any of that either.
0: That's a fabulous change in what we do. And how about the length of time?
1: Yeah, and I do, I do just want to mention before we move on that if if you have that rare patient who is either not immunized or under immunized, we do recommend broadening to augmentin ES because you would want to you you might worry about having to treat h flu so that would be the only change but um but the duration this so this is another enormous enormous change in literature and we've been looking at this for a really long time and have sort of slowly over time changed even our practice in the hospital setting for duration but now we are being really really bold so again over the about the last 5 years or so there have been a ton of papers really really well done studies looking at compare looking doing their um non-inferiority trials so comparing a shorter course of antibiotic with a longer with the more longer standard course so there have been papers looking at 5 days versus 10 days 5 days versus 7 days and even 3 days versus seven or 10 days. And all of these studies show that these durations have equal efficacy. So in other words, a short duration of antibiotics works just as well as a longer duration of antibiotics. So what we recommend now for mild cases of pneumonia, which I think are most of the cases that are treated by outpatient providers, um, we do support a short five-day course of antibiotics.
0: Now, that's even given the fact that we know that most parents who get a recommended prescription of five days may lose a dose, skip a dose. So even if we're down to four days, we're still in pretty good shape.
1: We are. And um, I have, I am working with one of our outpatient, um, well, one of our ID providers, pardon me, Dr. El-Jabib, and Dr. Dorado, who's the pharmacist. ID pharmacist, who's the head of our Antimicrobial Stewardship Committee, we're doing a pilot program for an outpatient ASP program, and we've been working with four community pediatric offices um, on improving antimicrobial stewardship, and every single office has decreased the average course of of antibiotics for pneumonia successfully. It's been really incredible to see. That's great
0: teaching. (laughs) It it, it can be done because it used to be stated that it took Practitioners 10 to 15 years to change their ways. Uh, now I think we've shortened it. We have greater mentoring with people like yourself. And I think also we are now looking at metrics from insurance standpoints and others that are actually going to be looking at things like they do in asthma, possibly this some other time. When would you be concerned if, as an outpatient, they were treated with amoxicillin? and they continue to have fever?
1: I love this question. Um, This comes up in the inpatient setting too. I think that if you are truly dealing with strep pneumo, you, you have to have a little bit of patience because even on the right antibiotic, you can continue to have fever for a few days you know, for two, even three, even four days. This is despite the the parent
0: who's calling 18 and 24 hours and they still have the fever. (laughs) I think
1: what we, what we look for and, you know, not, I think not every parent is comfortable enough with this idea or savvy enough to understand this idea of what is a fever curve, but what we look for is that the fever curve is improving, Meaning that the height of the fever starts to get lower and lower over time, and then the frequency of the fevers gets more space in between the fevers. That's such an
0: excellent point because uh, there's so much fever phobia out there to begin with. That if we can do some teaching about that, it would serve the greater good and serve a greater purpose. So let's assume that the fever stays up to 103. Uh, Child is still coughing. Are there any? Before we would send them into the emergency room, are there any outpatient laboratory uh, components that you think would be helpful from uh, procalcitonin to CRP Mm -hmm. to WBC?
1: It's like I planted you because I've done a lot of work in this area. Um, I think the only helpful test, to be honest, that that I would do at that moment in time, besides maybe checking a pulse ox, is, is a chest X-ray. You know, you're looking for these complications of pneumonia that might need a um, different kind of management than you're providing. There aren't really any labs that I think that would change your management at that moment in time. Um, there's a lot of adult literature about procalcitonin and procalcitonin can't tell you, yes, a patient has bacterial pneumonia. What it does have is a very high negative predictive value. So in other words, if it's normal, you can feel pretty darn good that this is not a bacterial pneumonia. Gotcha. But if it's like equivocal or high, it could still be viral. <laughs> so so I don't know that that's useful in the outpatient setting. But I think a chest x-ray can be useful because it can help you understand if there's a complication of pneumonia. But it
0: sounds like you may use the procalcitonin for an inpatient who's a bit complicated. Maybe. You
1: know, we, we, we actually took it out of our workup for pneumonia um, because it was not being used for good.
0: You know, okay. it wasn't
1: being used for its negative predictive value. And we found that too many people were, were maybe over, we, maybe it was causing some treatment in the inpatient setting, any of these inflammatory markers, um, I like procalcitonin because it changes quicker, you know, with the course of disease. Mm-hmm. So it responds mm-hmm. quicker. It's really good for following, for for helping, you know, is your treatment effective? So you can follow them over time to see if it gets better if you have any question about-
0: But how, certainly how not doing. an outpatient test. We often read these on the reports, but- uh, Yeah,
1: I don't, I don't think it has great utility in the outpatient setting, though. No.
0: What about those with penicillin allergies, uh, which is running amok in private practices? Often we have a new patient who said they had a rash when they were one year old. Were you ever tested? The answer is no, but they've never had penicillin since or right. amoxicillin. So,
1: You are right. It is is really important to do a thorough penicillin allergy history. There's a lot of literature. The literature overwhelmingly demonstrates that documented penicillin allergies are not true allergies. Um, And if you suspect that a patient might not have a true penicillin allergy, referral for for, um, allergy testing is really, really important because, you know, we don't want to eliminate use of these Um, more narrow-spectrum antibiotics in the name of antimicrobial stewardship. And we know that amoxicillin is honestly the best optimal coverage for strep pneumo. Per the IDSA, uh, there is no oral cephalosporin that provided activity in the lungs, which is the site of infection that we're talking about, that equaled high-dose amoxicillin, most second- or third-gen Cephalosporins can only provide adequate activity against about 60 to 70% of currently isolated strains of pneumococcus. So, you know, those other options are not ideal. Um, If you suspect your patient has true penicillin allergy, you can treat with clindamycin. Or for those who are under immunized, in those cases, the best choice really is a second or third generation cephalosporin because clindamycin doesn't cover H-flu. And then you just need to make sure that they're getting better.
0: Okay. No, this is great information, especially with the fact that we've had so many patients who actually even ask for the ceft- for the septonir or something of that nature and because they've used it for otitis in the past. So they prefer to use it, uh, but it really isn't as effective as you're telling us right now.
1: Right, and and actually for ear infections too, it's not as effective, so.
0: Right. So I think we just touched on this, but we can re-summarize how long of a course is rec- is recommended, if you want to re-summarize that for me, because it's so important.
1: Yeah, again, I think for all intents and purposes, um, five days should be your go-to for duration of, of antibiotics for pneumonia.
0: Okay, super. Before we end, I just want to, know, so we have a child, who has two days of fever or let's say three or four days of fever with a low bar pneumonia does not seem to be getting better. Uh, and we send them into the CCMC ER, What would be your criteria for admission of that child?
1: Oh, sure. You know, our criteria for admission are probably what you would imagine. So if a patient requires oxygen for um, f- for a low oxygen saturation. If they're having such um, increased work of breathing that we feel like they need other sorts of support to help them with their breathing. If, if it's a little kid, maybe they require deep suctioning to maintain their SATs or maintain their work of breathing. That's something that a family couldn't really do at home. Um, certainly if a child were dehydrated and not able to hydrate themselves on their own orally, would be another reason or if they need if we think they need some sort of procedure like they have a very large effusion that might require a chest tube
0: okay great how often do you see concomitant pneumonias with a with a, with another infection a viral a flu uh covid uh that always comes up you know we'll make a diagnosis of flu and think that that's the end but it may not be do you often see Two infections at once?
1: Yeah, I mean we we sometimes we sometimes certainly do. I think everybody really, you know, what you fear is the dreaded flu that that can then predispose to a MRSA pneumonia. That's um, something that can bring somebody into the ICU. But these are rare, occur- they do happen certainly, but it- these are rare occurrences. And typically what you would see is a patient with a normal course of flu and maybe they're even starting to get better and then they acutely worsen again. That would be a sign of of a bacterial super infection, that how, how we refer to it. Um, we haven't really seen a ton of bacterial infection with COVID, definitely not a ton of that. Um, and our use of antibiotics nationally for COVID infections has actually gone down over the past couple of years. I think now that people have gotten a little more comfortable with COVID being being what it is, COVID. Um, so we don't see it all that often, but definitely the typical course is somebody has viral symptoms and then they're slowly getting better and then all of a sudden they worsen again.
0: Yes. Okay. Well, thank you. What resources, and I think we've already talked about some of them, are available to outpatient pediatric providers to keep them up to date with the management of community-acquired pneumonia. Uh, certainly, this podcast is going to be one of the best, and I'm going to encourage all my colleagues to listen to it because there's a lot of change that needs to happen.
1: Yeah, I um, I thank you for this question. So at Connecticut Children's it has a lot of resources for community um, providers that are free. Um, I, I'm the, I happen to be the Director of, of Clinical Effectiveness for Connecticut Children's, and um, I direct both the Clinical Pathways and CLASP programs. So the Clinical Pathways program has, we have an internet site that is free, it's public, and we have Clinical Pathways for the management of a number of pediatric conditions, and we we have one for pneumonia, so you can always refer there for the up-to-date pneumonia information. Um, and I am really proud of our website. And not only do we include the care algorithms, but the, we actually have reference lists and um, an educational PowerPoint for every single one of our clinical pathways that walks people through the evidence behind the pathway and how to use the pathway.
0: That's Another.
1: Re- oh, yeah. Thank you. And then. Another reference is um, there is a mobile and web based app called First Line. That's actually all one word, First Line. And this is a free app that anybody can download. When you log in, you can scroll down and select Connecticut Children's. We're going to ask you like 60 seconds of questions only the first time you use it. You never have to answer them again, just because we like to know who our users are. And this is um, um, an app that is meant to be used at the point of care. So it is an antimicrobial app. It contains guidelines, antibiotic dosing information and Connecticut specific susceptibility data for organisms. Uh, Our antimicrobial stewardship program at Connecticut Children's maintains this app and all of our antimicrobial included, um, excuse me, all of our antimicrobial including pathways are also in this app.
0: Well, thank you so much. This is a spectacular amount of wonderful knowledge, things for us to learn, and things for us to change the way we practice. Uh, so, Dr. one, I want to thank you for all your stewardship and creating a number of these guidelines and managing them. It is uh, We are blessed to have you as a member of our community of practitioners. Thank you. I also wanted to thank with this one particular algorithm, Grace Hong, who is a nurse practitioner, and Jennifer Gerardo who is a pharmacist, I think, who assisted mm-hmm. you in putting this together. It is just marvelous. And thank you so much for all your help in, in uh, providing better care for all of our kids.
1: Yeah, thank you. The pathways are definitely a team effort and require input from all the important stakeholders.
0: Okay. Well, thank you. And we'll be leaving some references and information for those that want more at the end of this podcast. We also recommend that anyone would go to the CCMC site, uh, Connecticut Children's, go to for professionals, and you'll see all of our clinical guidelines and pathways right there, as well as the class guidelines too. So thank you so much for everyone and for Dr. Wainik for this podcast we'll see you ne- or we'll speak to you next month thank you all take care bye